A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss Keir Starmer's year as Labour leader and you ask us about the violence in Northern Ireland. We're now into over one year of Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party, so we thought it would be a good time to discuss how we think he's doing. We've all written about his various different leadership successes and failings over the year. But what, you know, what's your gut feeling tell you? How do you feel the overall year has been for him? Alba? You know, it's strange because we talk about this so much. I feel like every day I'm kind of thinking about how Keir Starmer is doing. But we so rarely get the chance to zoom out and talk about this Mm. that I'm actually sort of unsure where to begin But I actually think it would be boring for people if I said I think he's done okay or I don't think he's done brilliantly and I'm not even sure what that soundbite would be. I think that the main thing that strikes me about Keir Starmer's leadership is that this has been leadership, to state the obvious, it has all taken place in a pandemic. And I think that my own top line is that he and the immediate team around him haven't sufficiently adjusted to pandemic politics. I'm beginning with this because I don't think I've committed it to print yet, but around sort of November, December, January, when everyone within Labour was, you know, or or close to Keir Starmer was briefing that, that, you know, the first year of Keir Starmer's leadership in 2020 was about establishing his difference from Jeremy Corbyn and sorting out the problem of anti-Semitism within the party, which he did. And that then 2021 would be about sort of setting out the future vision. The thing that really struck me, though, is that in November and December and January, when Labour were talking about how this was going to happen, about different speeches that were going to be made and so on, setting out this vision, there was a complete disconnect from the Labour from the Labour Party's own positions on the government's coronavirus strategy and its calls for for example, a circuit break. And the more you think about it, the less they cohere. Because if on the one hand, you have Keir Starmer saying, we urgently need a circuit break lockdown, the government then doesn't deliver that. And you're and you're looking at another wave of coronavirus with all of the implications of that. It then makes no sense to have a political party planning around this idea that the pandemic will be broadly over and that there'll be appetite in the new year for these bigger vision speeches. And then what we saw was all of these speeches that 
were kind of about other stuff and kind of about the pandemic. And Keir Stormer was asked lots of questions about the pandemic and he didn't have terribly good answers to them. And I think it just shows that there was quite a lot of opportunism in the policy calls that they made about the pandemic. For example, the call for a circuit break was completely the right one to make. I don't think anyone disputes that. Literally the sage minutes in which they had recommended it had been published. There was no way the opposition shouldn't have gone for that. So they kind of made the the necessary policy calls when they had to. But I just don't think that their thinking on the pandemic was really absorbed into their strategy. Like they didn't think, oh, we think that the government isn't handling the pandemic well. Therefore, we're looking at another wave of this. Therefore, in the new year, we can't do our big vision speeches it'll still be about the pandemic. So I just think it's sort of the whole thing encapsulates this preference within the Labour leadership and that top team to just assume that people are not going to be interested in the individual policy calls during the pandemic so much. They're not going to be interested in politicians tearing pieces out of each other. And so Labour just needs to focus on the bigger vision and the on the post-pandemic picture basically means that Labour hasn't had a very good coronavirus strategy. You know, it's been fine. And the people on the economics brief have talked about the need for greater economic support and the health, you know, the health brief has been fine, but there hasn't, you know, there haven't been terribly many big ideas. And it just means that I think then the the calls that they do make, some of them have been fine, but it hasn't been that inspired. It's like they're just playing a waiting game, waiting for it to be over. And the reason I think that everyone's saying that Rachel Reeves has done so well is that she's the person who I think has best adapted to pandemic politics, which is ironic because she's the same person focused on the the future planning and, and the bigger, broader strategy for Labour. She's the person who has really directed a lot of her shadowing and opposition to difficulties that are present here and now and will have reach into the future. So on outsourcing and PPE procurement and the broader picture of Tory quote unquote cronyism. I think that's the biggest thing, more more than I think the gripes with the left of the party and now the, the grievances from the right of the Labour Party or the the comms or the, or the top team. I think that the way they have not really just done pandemic politics has been the biggest flaw in Keir Starmer's first year. Yeah, I think essentially Alva's right. Then, and you can see this playing out in the, the Labour Party's speeches and video announcements, right? Yeah, they began with a makeshift studio, you know, put together very impressively considering HQ at that time. A, couldn't really plan for lockdown because although everyone knew that yeah, in that weird period at the start of March when everyone was kind of going, oh, this might be the last time we do X. They couldn't really plan for that. They couldn't really plan for a specific leader. And so they very rapidly turned uh, one of their rooms in the office into a makeshift studio, which, you know, is very impressive considering the constraints. Then midway through, they changed the colour to one which made Keir Starmer and Lorena look slightly less like they were about to expire but which didn't do anything for anyone else in the shadow cabinet. And it was really only in the last couple of months than, and yeah, Labour does actually have, as pretty much all political parties do, a set of brand guidelines to help local parties produce good literature. It was really only in the last few months that they started to produce content where you could tell they're gone, okay, actually, we are going to have to be like this for a long time. And I think 
that has slightly stymied their correct, in my view, strategic analysis, which is that the pandemic was a moment to introduce Keir Starmer just to go, thank goodness we're not the South Korean opposition who has to fight an election this year and just kind of get through it. On the narrow focus, which obviously, as long-time listeners will know, is, is what I believe to be the most important predictor of electoral outcomes, approval ratings. Yes, he has succeeded on that, right? His ratings continue to be in the David Cameron zone. Although if I were in Starmer's office, that would I would find that particularly alarming, considering that David Cameron's uh, ratings continue to decline for quite a bit in 2006, 2007. So the floor may not yet have been reached. But, you know, they, they've sort of done all of that stuff, carried that stuff off about right. The question, though, is how deliberate was that, right? Like, how, how, how much was that a kind of sort of correct analysis of let's just not get done for doing politics in, in a pandemic? And let's just get through this in a position where people broadly can, and Ben Walker's done a very good piece going over his numbers, where people broadly look at it and go, yeah, he's in the kind of election winning category. He could go on to win from here. Yeah, he's done all right, right? Or is the reason why they've given these terrible speeches, not because they are doing stakeholder management and they think, okay, right, we need to give a speech because some people think it would actually be a good idea to try and give a policy-rich speech at a point when, yeah, large chunks of people just aren't following the news, are kind of in this sort of horror state of, I don't want to hear about anything. Or is it because actually those speeches are the big ideas? I think that's going to be the big thing that we will discover in 2022. Yeah, so 2021, 22 will be to what extent, as we move into an era of more normal politics, they can start doing some of the stuff I think they need to start doing. So having a kind of, not I don't mean more nuanced in a kind of like fudging the basic position. I think the position on crime, which is obviously the position on crime they have had now for most of the decade, is, is the correct one electorally. But can they get into a position where they are hammering the Conservatives on how long you wait to get a court date if you're the victim of a crime? Because the court system is so stuffed by both the cuts and by COVID, right, Then. Just if you're an opposition party, you just should be going, hey, let's let's hit that bruise as much as we can. You know, can they gain some slightly more variety of tones? I do think they one of the major weapons of an effective opposition is mockery. It is laughable for a government to go, yes, we're really hard, loads of nuclear missiles. By the way, we're P45ing some more soldiers. It is laughable for a government to say long sentences. The amount of sentences increased in their crime and policing bill is basically exactly the same as the amount that your time waiting for your day in court, if you're a victim, has increased by. Just like that kind of stuff where you kind of can't get away with being fun in in a pandemic, I think. I think it looks a bit dotty, but it is an important part of doing opposition well, is to make the government look silly. Can they do that stuff? Because if they can, then I think we'll, we'll be able to look back at this year and go, oh, right, they had the right strategic positions. If they can't, we might just go, oh, right, it just turned out that they were sort of perfectly evolved for these circumstances, but deeply maladapted for normal politics. Yeah, I agree with you. It will take time to see whether or not the positions they've taken can be converted into the kind of either punching the bruise or mockery of, of the government that you kind of need to cut through and you need to make the, the government look bad in voters' eyes, which is quite hard to do during a pandemic, not least because, as we know, voters don't want opposition parties to play politics during a pandemic, which, you know, related to the pandemic response, but also it's difficult to to, to sort of make political points on other issues during this time, 
people aren't paying attention to it and it's not the top of their priorities, but also it it feeds into that view that you're being unhelpful towards a prime minister who's been put in a sort of unprecedented position in terms of the the challenge that that he's had trying to respond to to COVID nineteen. So I do I do agree that we need to take time to see whether or not they can convert that into sort of good attack lines and good opposition. And maybe it's been worth them outlining their positions on certain issues to kind of build on that next year. But when the pandemic began and when Keir Starmer became leader, I I started out feeling really sorry for him because I thought it was such a dilemma, which Ben Walker, whose piece you mentioned, lays out very well in in his piece on the website about how, you know, you have your Labour activists and sort of Labour Party members who feel that you're not opposing enough and then you have the, you know, the general population or at least the voters that you want to win over who maybe abandoned Labour last time round in the kind of seats that you need to win in an election thinking, oh, you've been too political, you've been too on the offensive and you haven't got behind the kind of national effort, which is a uh, sentiment that I heard so much when I was speaking to people, which I've spoken about before on the podcast. Just it's amazing how many people have that view, no matter how they've been impacted by the pandemic and no matter how angry they are about its impact on their day-to-day lives and their health and, and their work, you still have that that real thirst for politicians pulling together. So so that dilemma of trying to be a you know a new Labour leader who is opposing some very terrible mistakes that the government was making and making over and over again, balancing that with this the very real feeling among voters of forgiveness of the government in such a, a such an unusual time, but also in wanting a kind of unity at the top of government as well. So that was such a dilemma. And I just thought, how on earth do you square that? But actually, I think they have failed in that task and that it wasn't inevitable to fail in that task because there was a way of opposing the government during this time and calling it out for its mistakes and picking up on the things that it had, it had done wrong in a way that wouldn't put the public off. And I think that approach lies more in sort of more basic, even sort of more more kind of consumer rights kind of politics. You know, Martin Lewis, for example, the money-saving expert, he's very—he's a very popular figure, but he's been doing his own kind of holding the government to account throughout this time, you know, working out how people can get the money back for their holidays that were cancelled, working out what it means if you're missing out on a government support because you only became self-employed after the threshold. You know, these kind of individual issues that affect a lot of people and that a lot of the public can sympathise with, even if they're not directly affected. He's been very effective in sort of not letting these issues go and holding government, individual government departments and ministers to account. And if he can do that, I know he's not tainted by, you know, representing a political party that some people support, some people don't. Obviously, it's easier to be an independent figure. But if he can do that kind of retail consumer scrutiny. I don't see why the Labour Party can't go down that route too. I mean, there were a lot of different ways that they could have done that and different campaigns they could have got on board with that were sort of more boring in a way, more quotidian, but they didn't. And so that, that worries me because I feel like that instinct hasn't been there and any success that they've had, which you mentioned well, you know, in terms of Keir Starmer being introduced to voters and him, you know, faring okay when you compare him with previous opposition party leaders in the same bit of the electoral cycle. And also when you compare his success to to Ed Miliband's or Jeremy Corbyn's popularity at this stage in their leadership, he's doing okay. But, you know, is that on purpose or is, (laughs) is that by chance? And I think in terms of assessing his instincts, for all of the, the all of the ways that the public has been thinking throughout this pandemic that I've just laid out, I 
don't think those instincts have been obvious yet. I mean, okay, this is going to be like the most stereotypical Blairite answer I ever give, hopefully. But I think one of the questions I have in terms of you say like, well, look, how much has he meant to do this stuff is I think one of the ways that they would have been able to navigate the difficult challenge of people don't want politics in a pandemic other than your base and your stakeholders really do. Ultimately, what, what gives a, a leader power is the sense that things are going well, right? And that causes anyone who's complaining to shut up. And I just think if they had done less kind of, oh, people want us to say something, so here's a speech that we're saying is about family, but it's actually just about us going, hey, family, that issue you trust us on, that's a lot like the economy, an issue you don't trust us on. Instead of doing that kind of small ball stuff to keep the kind of hyper-engaged people and the commentariat happy, I mean, not least seeing as the commentariat ain't happy. Okay, actually, the majority of, of the Labour membership, according to the only poll we have as far, 69% of them are, think things are going better than they were under Corbyn. So, okay, the membership is kept on. But, you know, the MPs are starting to get a bit meh. And I just think that seeing as those people would have freaked out if he had, after, say, one of the statements where he basically didn't have anything to say, right? Just one of the things where the government had done something right fairly early on, if it just stood up and said, I agree with that. That's great. Thank you. Sat down and then just gone all sick pay all the time. People might have noticed mm-hmm. as opposed to the kind of I did start counting at one point, And there was one month during the pandemic where they announced more policy, more kind of bug fixes, as it were, you know, kind of, oh, you know, do this thing for sick pay. Yeah. Get rid of do that. They announced more kind of coronavirus policy than Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party announced policy full stop in 2016. Wow. It's like, no wonder no one noticed it, guys. If you want people to pay attention to your position. And I think what I found bizarre is that he clearly does get that a bit, right? Because every opportunity he has. Do you remember that hilarious moment when the commentariat was on side? When Boris Johnson said something which was actually completely true. You know, it's like basically like, mate, how can you attack me on this issue? You're in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. And Starmer did actually a very good performance of being angry. Not if you saw when he actually did get angry during the Labour hustings, anything like what angry Starmer actually looks like. But he did like a very good kind of, sir, sir, how dare you? How dare you force me to remind the audience that I am someone who has banged up a lot of crooks. I am disgusted, disgusted, sir, that you are forcing me to say that I have brought terrorists to justice. <laughs> He's like been very good at doing the, hey, I just met you, this is crazy, but I used to be DPP, right? <laughs> He's been really good at that kind of stuff. But there has been no equivalent discipline on policy announcements. I just think, and again, sorry, I know this is an incredibly stereotypically Blairite issue, it's because his approach has been to mollify people in the bubble, people in the Labour Party who want more action by going, you want action? We'll have another speech next week. You want action? We'll announce like another thing about Serco. Now, I'm not saying I think the Serco policy was bad. I just think that if they had either had the Serco policy or the sick pay policy, then the people who wanted them to do some opposition might have noticed it. And if they had done something big, like going at some point, and there were opportunities to do this, hey, actually, we think this is fine, no further questions, the people who want them to do that might have noticed it. Instead of kind of trying to sort of do the don't do too much opposition, but we'll mollify the people who want to do more opposition with our policy Tourette's. And that does worry me in terms of his instincts. 
this thing is, I don't think you have to like pick a fight with your party necessarily on left, right, or factional lines. Often that is unhelpful. But I do think a leader needs to pick a fight with their party in terms of going, I am the candidate, I am the message, here is what my plan to win is, and we're going to do it, and if you don't like it, shut up, right? Otherwise, you know, you end up in the Joe Swinson zone where you go, oh, looks like the membership likes Revoke, better make myself the agent of that rather than the victim. And then it turns out you've actually made yourself the victim of it in a very different way. I feel like there's also an important context where I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who maybe are Labour members or Labour supporters who feel a bit alienated by Keir Starmer's leadership, who maybe are just further to the left than him, who didn't like that video over the weekend from his visit to Jesus House, a church that has a pastor who supports conversion therapy, who haven't necessarily liked the position on trans rights, who didn't like the security positions on things like the overseas operations bill, which did see quite a lot of quite talented front benchers, not even necessarily just from the Labour left, but from elsewhere in the party, resigning their front bench positions quite early on in the day. I feel like There are plenty of things like that where we'll have listeners sort of shouting at their podcast devices with their grievances on that. And like lots of those criticisms come from the left. And then, like you were saying, Stephen, the commentariat is is not wildly enamoured of Keir Starmer at the moment. And a lot of that is coming from the right of the Labour Party, I think for different reasons, kind of hoping to push Starmer more to the right on, on policy positions. And so then there's sort of the bigger question of, I mean, those people who shout the loudest aren't necessarily representative either of the Labour base or the wider electorate. But I think that's a kind of a huge context of it, that even if those people aren't necessarily great in number, it creates this feeling that he's not doing very well, whether it's, you know, young idealistic activists or senior people in the party. I think it, it... doesn't create a very good atmosphere for Keir Starmer. But then there's the, there's the broader question of sort of what are they trying to do post-pandemic and what's the case that they are going to be making in the kind of people that they are trying to win over. Clearly the, the whole strategy is, is to slightly run away from the Remainer image or the you know, soft on crime image or being too culture warsy or woke. And I suppose the implicit strategy is that you keep those people with you, even if they're slightly annoyed. But if, you know, as long as they ultimately mostly stick with Labour, even if they aren't doing so that enthusiastically, then you can chase the centre ground and you can chase other voters, you can chase more socially conservative voters, you can chase people with more authoritarian instincts on crime and so on. And that's how you actually get elected. But I think it's it's just difficult to see if if that is really working um, because the alienation is so prominent when you're covering this that I find that there's a lot of noise from people in my own demographic, people you know of a similar age and background to me, who don't like Keir Starmer's leadership for various reasons. And the unfortunate thing is that probably for them doesn't really matter very much. But then that's a that's like a huge presence when you're covering this. And then the question of the famous red wall voter and what and what they're thinking, whether they've actually been reached by Keir Starmer's policies, whether they're kind of being convinced by the overall agenda is a lot less 
clear and I think it's also much harder to see any progress that's being made because the noise around it is that lots of people are unhappy with it I think we we end Keir Starmer's year with him doing as, as Stephen pointed out ultimately not that badly in terms of his approval ratings but I think the mood music is is quite bad which will be a big drag on them going forward. I do also think right the other weird thing is obviously we've quite rightly talked about in terms of, you know, what they're trying to do, what his current numbers are. But as we've previously said, right, there is not a substantive difference in terms of the overarching electoral strategy from the Labour leadership just gone and the one we have now, right? Right down to the fact that, you know, their their big crime announcements today are virtually identical to the ones they had last time. The difference is, is that broadly, a different group of people believed or didn't believe Jeremy Corbyn when he said these things, right? You know, people who went, who would kind of sneer when Diane Abbott did her, guys, those police cuts have been a problem up until 2017 when they suddenly realised actually it wasn't sneer-worthy, it was quite an effective electoral wedge strategy, are going, oh yeah, this is great, this is very astute. People who were happy to, you know, shout, cheer and stomp when, you know, lines like from the prison straight to the airport were used are going, oh, this is terrible. Oh, you know, we can never win on this ground. And it's just like, well, lads, if you want to learn from the 2017 election, it would help if you remembered the 2017 election position. But the sort of argument that that is an electorally fruitful position for for Labour is that the people who believe Keir Starmer and dislike it when he says the stuff that Jeremy Corbyn said on crime have a kind of concomitant echo of people who didn't believe Jeremy Corbyn on it. But exactly as you say, then a bunch of people who are slightly less enthusiastic can still be brought together. And that's how you kind of achieve the electoral coalition that's envisaged in the in the Labour Together report. And I guess I'm still a bit dubious when I kind of move away from, well, look, the numbers say, yeah, he possibly can do it. I'm just still a bit dubious. I kind of think you can't do 2017, but the but the leadership is more reassuring. I think you can either do 2017 and the leadership is not reassuring, and that's not sufficient to win, or you do 2017 and the leadership is reassuring, and the people who liked the unreassuring bit don't really buy that you've you've done the other stuff. So is that enough to win? If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Our question today is, was this violence on the streets of Northern Ireland entirely predictable? 
Alva, you've been looking into this and I know you've had to give your view quite a lot on the airwaves recently, but um, do you want to tell us what you think the answer to that question is? <laughs> yeah, before we started recording, I should acknowledge that I was complaining slightly that I've, I've <laughs> delivered this line quite a bit now, so I'm going to try to make it sound natural. <laughs> I think the thing I've been just saying a lot today, and because there, there is so much interest, and quite rightly, there is so much interest in the recent violence in Northern Ireland. It was the sixth consecutive night of violence yesterday evening. We're recording on Thursday. There was a sixth consecutive night of violence. There's a lot of interest in it. And I think that the British conversation around it hasn't always been terribly well informed. So it's really quite a simple point that I've been making, but really that there are three overlapping reasons or causes for, for the violence in unionist communities in recent weeks. And you kind of need to include all three to encapsulate it properly and not to do a disservice to any of the different groups involved or the different perspectives. And also that the key to then understanding the politics of it is to understand that basically everyone agrees that these three reasons are in play, but different people are amplifying different ones a bit more than others. So those those three would be, I'm sure people listening can anticipate them, but the big underlying simmering discontent in unionist communities with the Irish sea border as part of the Brexit agreement, which feels like a massive affront to unionist identities in Northern Ireland. And, and it's not really clear how that will be resolved. If anything, it's only set to get worse as the Brexit arrangements are, are fully put into place. So that's the sort of the simmering longer term thing. And then that discontent has really been catalyzed in the past few weeks by a decision not to prosecute Sinn Féin politicians, including the Deputy First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, for attending a funeral of a senior Republican, Bobby Story, back in June in alleged breach of coronavirus legislation. So about 2,000 people attended that, that funeral outside or lined the streets. It was hugely controversial at the time in a very divisive way, as you can imagine, because certain communities in a Republican context, Bobby Story was a beloved figure. Uh, you know, he was a former head of intelligence for the IRA. On the other hand, it was a particularly aggravating for people not in that community that such a big funeral took place and that then those politicians who who made those coronavirus rules are not being prosecuted for that. So that's been a, a really, really divisive thing. And that decision that they aren't going to be prosecuted was announced within the past few weeks. So that has kind of ignited this tension. But then there's also the, the important third thing that I feel hasn't been covered so well in British media, which is just that it's also important to understand the role of paramilitaries in this in loyalist communities across Northern Ireland that, I mean, that's a kind of a glamorous way of describing what are effectively criminal gangs and drug dealing gangs that have their roots in, you know, in the historic organisations of the past and have considerable influence in certain communities, but who still are ultimately criminal gangs and have their own reasons for encouraging young people in their communities to go out and cause trouble against the police to you know be throwing petrol bombs at the police or throwing bricks and that is that there have been recent police crackdowns on their criminal activity so they have you know I think it's impossible to say how much these riots are out of the big idealistic political important legitimate grievances in unionist communities and how much of them are 
senior paramilitaries encouraging young people to go out and do their bidding and get criminal records. I think you need you need all three aspects, all three are present to really capture the, the nuance of the situation, how tricky it is. It's so interesting because what you've really been describing is a perfect storm and it's quite difficult to pick one cause that would suggest that this kind of violence is inevitable, which is what our questioner has been asking us. And I think there is there is a tendency like you were talking about the British media to suggest that this is the path sort of Brexit set us down. And actually, Jonathan Powell, who was the chief negotiator on the British side during the Good Friday peace talks, he said that these problems didn't exist, you know, in modern times, he meant until Brexit kicked it off. Mm. And he was saying, you know, as soon as we went down the path of Brexit, someone was going to get hurt. And that's quite an interesting analysis that's worth testing, because while you do have that that kind of betrayal on the part of the British government. You know, there was that red line. I think Arlene Foster called it her blood red line of no border down the Irish Sea and Theresa May told Parliament, you know, no UK Prime Minister could ever agree to that. Boris Johnson, you know, said a similar thing to the DUP. You know, no British Conservative government could sign up to that. There's a reason why they said those things. They wanted to appeal to, to the DUP who were important for their support in Parliament. But also, you know, they know the reason why it was important to say that too in terms of, you know, some of the fallout that we're seeing now in terms of the union and its and its cohesion and also in terms of not risking tensions that we're seeing that have been simmering now and coming to the fore. So there was a reason they said those things. So when this oven ready deal that was so boasted about by Boris Johnson and his allies, you know, the idea that he'd drawn up this deal and everyone thought it couldn't be done. And then he did. The only reason it could be done is because that red line was, was washed away. And now of course it's the um, Northern Ireland protocol has tipped the balance over to the side that disgruntles and, and angers the unionist community and you can see some of the consequences playing out. But then again, you know, is it inevitable? Politicians' words do have an impact. Arlene Foster's spoken about the real lawbreakers in Sinn Féin, and the DUP is still calling for the chief constable to resign over the policing of, of that funeral. So, you know, how much is it that senior politicians know the impact of their words and they know, you know, how, in this case, loyalists will respond to these these kind of stances that they take and how much is it that the events are merely following a likely route from which follows the Brexit deal and the way that it tipped the balance away from any kind of border on the island of Ireland towards a border in the Irish Sea. Stephen what's your take on it? Yeah someone who was involved in Northern Ireland policy in, in the last Labour government once said yeah look our, our overarching was to make Northern Irish politics boring or it's another one of them put it this year more arguments about water rates, fewer <laughs> arguments about borders and flag. And although, uh, as Alva captures really well, you can't explain what's happening solely with reference to the way that Brexit has made questions about the border and the constitutional status of Northern Ireland very live again. Mm. The way it adds a sort of additional risk factor is that if you are Arlene Foster, your ability to be conciliatory on one hand is severely limited by the fact you have this thing in the Irish Sea. And so that further sort of creates another kind of difficult sort of kind of, okay, well, it's impossible to meet people in the middle because I have a problem here. So that kind of increases the tensions and difficulty. And because of the, you know, the consent mechanism where essentially, well, basically, if you can get 
a majority to vote to reopen the protocol, then there will be a kind of period of talks that, which will trigger a four-year waiting period, which at the end of the however many year waiting period, I may have got the number of years wrong, they will consider reopening the protocol, right? So it's a little bit kind of, you know, a consent mechanism where, you know, if, if the DUP can collect all of the power orbs when the stars align, then the, the Irish seawater will fall away. But the, the difficulty with that is, is, I think, impossible to see how once that vote arrives, how the power sharing institutions instalment don't collapse. Because at that point, the the level of compromise people being asked to make to keep them going, I just think becomes politically untenable for people. I kind of think in some ways, in terms of the question, which is kind of, you know, was this a predictable consequence of the protocol? I think in some ways the answer is no, but the predictable consequence of the protocol is, is still coming down the track is the fact that all of these arguments about the border and where the border, a live part of Northern Irish politics, that is going to create all sorts of difficulties. And in some ways, I think some of the coverage of this week deepens some of that in that it once again typifies and sort of highlights the big fear among the unionist community, which is that the union will be sold out through indifference, right? People clearly aren't, you know, I mean, as and they, they never were, right? That's one of the reasons why the IRA started conducting operations in Great Britain, because people just weren't het up or weren't noticing operations in Northern Ireland. And so I think that the sort of depressing thought is, I think the predictable consequences haven't happened yet. But they are predictable, and I think they will ine- inevitably. I think loyalist violence will... You know, continue to be a, a great and growing feature, not just in Northern Ireland, where obviously it's never gone away. But um, I do not see how we won't see loyalist violence in ports, yeah, you know, on the other side of the Irish sea border. Which I mean, this shouldn't be the case. People should care about it when it happens in Northern Ireland. But I think will be the moment when politically people start to care about that kind of stuff in a Westminster context. Because, yeah, everyone is still like, oh, get Brexit done. Oh, isn't it complex? Don't they have a lot of different parties? Oh, they're not really part of Great Britain anyway. They're not really part of the United Kingdom anyway. You know, that kind of like media bubble consensus about and indeed political bubble consensus about it will, I think, will also start to come on the strain. Yeah. I mean, you only have to look at the coverage of the empty supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland after Brexit came in to know that there is indifference, isn't there? Because if that had happened on the, you know, on the mainland, not a nice expression to use, but if that had happened in Britain, then it would have been the top of the news. And and it's just telling that it never was. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and this is actually the last episode of the New Statesman podcast that he'll be producing after nearly 200 episodes. And so thank you so much, Nick, for making us sound coherent and making our internet connections actually sound like they work for this past pandemic year. And good luck with all of your upcoming podcasts. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret 
and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.